Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we're going to be discussing whether Britain is set to leave the single market and Theresa May's push for bringing back grammar schools. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, our political editor who's back in action after the summer, Chris Giles, the FT's economics editor, Helen Worrell, our public policy correspondent, and Miranda Green, our former education correspondent and now all-round commentator. Thank you all for joining. Westminster kicked back into action this week and Brexit was, unsurprisingly, top of the agenda. David Davis, Britain's new Brexit secretary, delivered his debut statement at the dispatch box in the House of Commons. Helpfully, he explained that Brexit simply means leaving the European Union. Who knew? There were few solid details on how, when or what Brexit is going to look like, but Mr Davis did inadvertently suggest Britain would eventually be pulling out of the single market, to the dismay of Remain-supporting MPs and some businesses. So George Parker, Mr Davis is in charge of Britain's Brexit negotiations, or so we're told, and having spent the summer deliberating over what it's actually going to be, we're not really none the wiser. So what is going on? Well, they've had a long time to talk about it over the uh, over the summer. And as you say, we've, we're none the wiser after statements from David Davis and indeed by Theresa May when she returned from the G20 in China. And the fact is that politicians and journalists are getting frustrated with this formulation that Brexit means Brexit. You know, that's, that seemed to get them through the summer. But now, actually, we want a little bit more detail. Um, Theresa May has decided... And this, I think, is a sign of the, sort of the real centralisation of this government, that she wants ministers to not speculate on what it means at all. What we do know from her visit to China is that she's not going to try to impose the most radical um, system of immigration control from the EU, the so-called Australian points-based system. Um, but she's going to look at something else. Um, we know that David Davis thinks that it's, it's improbable that at the end of all this, we will remain a member of the single market. But the fact of the matter is throughout the autumn, as they talk to business groups, as they talk to fellow world leaders, as Theresa May was doing in China this week, they'll all be saying we need maximum access to the single market. But all of this is up for grabs um, and it's going to be a long, drawn out process through the autumn. Because Chris Giles, the essential problem the government has got is that Brexit is going to ultimately be a series of... um potentially painful decisions that have to be made, compromises, because so far Theresa May seems to want to have, you know, the the cake and do the perfect deal, but there's no indication that's going to happen. You've written about this week where these decisions might have to be made, and essentially it's this line, from what I understand, between access to the single market and migration control. Based on what you've seen and heard, where do you think Britain's going to end up falling? Well, I think we're not going to have membership of the single market. I think access to the single market is a, a phrase that is bandied around but doesn't What really does it mean? mean? Yeah, It means nothing because, well, maybe North Korea doesn't have access to it because we have sanctions against North Korea, but any other country does have access to the single market. So it's the terms of access which matter and the terms and that's different from membership because membership means harmonised regulations, everything the same. It's the same market or that's what the ambition 
is for the single market. There's no difference between selling in your corner shop uh, somewhere in London and selling in a corner shop somewhere in Berlin or Bratislava. So, But that is clearly not going to be the case if we are not members of the single market. Just take something very simple like product regulations. So forget tariffs for a second. Do we have our own product regulations or do we accept the European standard product regulations as we do now? If we don't accept the European product regulations, well, then anything made in Britain and sold in Europe will have to conform to those. But that means the manufacturer will have to have two sets of standards they are uh, adhering to. That will be bad for that manufacturer, but it might be good for a domestic producer in the UK who doesn't export to Europe at all. So these are trade-offs. So the government will in all cases, this is just one decision, in every case we'll have to trade off some winners and some losers, and that those are difficult decisions. Politicians love easy decisions that everyone gains, but there won't be any of those. Yes, well, exactly, and, and Chris mentioned some of the uh, political problems involved in being a member of the single market. Of course, we've written a, a lot about the fact that you have to apply the free movement of workers. But then the other thing, which is a huge issue for the sovereigntists on the Tory benches, is the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice as the ultimate dispute settler in the single market, which obviously is a red line for a number of Tory Eurosceptics. So Chris is right, it's the degree of access to the single market which matters most, and particularly for people in the City of London. So before we had this dispatch box and speeches this week, and the Cabinet met at Chequers last week, which was everyone gathering back together, and the general view was this was going to be where the details would be thrashed out and there would be some kind of vague strategy or outlines formulated. But as we've seen Philip Stevens's column in the FT this week, that's not really what happened, that the Cabinet all gathered together. They didn't decide on when they want to activate Article 50. They didn't decide about the single market and they didn't decide to begin those compromises that Chris talked about. Um, Should we be worried at all, George, that there's not really any decisions being made here or is this just to be expected? You know, we are still relatively early on, you could argue, it's two months since the referendum, one month since Theresa May became Prime Minister. I don't think we should be too worried at this stage. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that Theresa May was only elected Prime Minister shortly before the summer recess, only a few weeks ago. Um, and bear in mind, if things had gone according to plan, she would still be fighting a Tory leadership uh, election. Not The expectation was that David Cameron would have been at China at the G20 this week, not her. So she needs time to work things through. And we've had the summer recess in between. But these are very big and complex issues. Um, there is an expectation around Europe that, and indeed at Westminster that Theresa May will present her plans for the negotiation by the beginning of next year. And I think if we don't start to see some progress and start to see some glimpses of light of what the negotiating position is and some of the details by, let's say, the end of October, beginning of November, I think people will start to get quite jittery. Yes, I agree. I think companies need to not only make decisions for now, but for one year ahead, two years ahead, and into the medium term. And if if you're a member of a supply chain and you're a procurement manager in Europe somewhere, maybe in the UK, maybe not in the UK, and a UK company was bidding for part of that supply chain, there's now political risk attached to that U- that UK company If when they say, we'd like to be part of this supply chain, because we don't know on what terms you're going to be able to do that in the future. So that's not an issue for now, that's an issue for later. So the, the longer there's complete uncertainty about whether this company will be able to participate fully, or whether actually there'll be sand thrown in the works of trade, that's going to hurt Britain. I think initially... Chris is right that business wants certainty. I think initially people liked the fact that Theresa May was taking her time. She wasn't going to rush into triggering Article 50. There was a stable government. And I think that helped to steady a few nerves over the summer. 
But the question is, and I think this is a, something that the Treasury are worried about, is that the closer you get to the start of the negotiations, the closer you get to the triggering of Article 50, the more those jitters will start to return. So that's why they want that certainty. One thing that I've picked up this week, and I'm sure you have as well, George, is the different style of government Theresa May is trying to do here, that David Cameron's operation was very good at putting bits, Twitter by government by Twitter, I believe, is the description, feeding bits here and there and leaking bits of policy. Theresa May's operation doesn't want to do that. They want to do big announcements, which, you know, someone in Downing Street said to me, we don't want to do presentation first, policy second. They want to get the policy and then present it, which is a lot of what Theresa did at the Home Office. And they also feel the trap that David Cameron fell into, which was announcing in his Bloomberg speech in 2013, this is what I want from the reform. And then three years later, getting none of it, that was used ruthlessly against him during the referendum campaign. So you can see where they're coming from. But there is, as you said, the danger that it does look as if they just don't have a clue what they're doing. Well, there's that danger. And there's also a danger that you end up trying to micromanage everything from number 10. And um, I'm writing a bit about this this week, actually, that minister, you speak to ministers around the table who say we can't do anything because we don't know what number 10 thinks. Now, you can understand that initially because Theresa May, is, for the points, the points you make, she wants to get the policy right. She wasn't didn't expect to be prime minister at this stage and she's taking her time. But in the end, you've got 20 or 25 ministers sat around the cabinet table who want to develop their own policies and they want to get the credit for those policies at the end of them. And one of the things I thought was very interesting, we were on the plane to China with Theresa May when she was talking about her approach to the Hinkley Point decision, the nuclear power station, and she said, I will take evidence, I will listen to advice, and then I will make a decision. Now, normally, prime ministers will at least pay lip service to the idea of collective cabinet responsibility. But on the big decisions, she's made it clear she's going to take the decisions herself. And I think... That can work maybe in one or two issues, but in the end, she's going to have to loosen the reins, I think. It feels to me all a little bit like Gordon Brown in his early days, that he wanted to take the decisions. He was the big beast of government then. And when events occurred and he couldn't take every decision because he couldn't be across every single thing at once, nothing happened. And that's, I think, maybe the big danger of the Theresa May uh, administration. One thing that I've been surprised with, Chris, is how little we've heard from the Treasury and the new Chancellor that traditionally in Whitehall, Downing Street and the Treasury are the big centres of power. Now, we've heard bits and bobs have leaked out that Philip Hammond is going to push for greater single market access, speaking on behalf of the economy and of the city and that sort of thing. But how much of a sense do you get that he's going to be a power centre or is he going to be a far more neutralised Chancellor than, say, George Osborne or Gordon Brown? I think he's going to be much less powerful than either Gordon Brown or George Osborne was in the Treasury. But it doesn't mean that the Treasury as an institution isn't immensely powerful in government because they can always say, well, if you take that decision, Prime Minister, and that hurts the economy by this amount, then we'll have this much less tax revenue and that will mean all these other things you want to do can't happen. And that's ultimately where they know their power lies. So I don't think the Treasury, even though it is clearly not going to be the big beast which sitting around the, the breakfast table every morning with the Prime Minister, it still is a very powerful uh, arm of government. Yes, I totally agree with that. And I think what's also interesting is that actually rather like the the Osborne-Cameron relationship, Theresa May and Philip Hammond actually are sort of pretty much on the same page, I think, at this stage, at least when it comes to the, the macroeconomic strategy, the abandonment of the fiscal targets for 2020, and what we expect to be a fairly... 
interesting autumn statement, I think, where we're going to hear a lot more about sort of infrastructure spending, which fits in with the Theresa May agenda. On the other side of the um, House of Commons, we did actually get some clarity from Labour this week that uh, Jeremy Corbyn has somehow allied himself with the tough Brexiters and saying that he's actually anti the single market, which is more clarity than we've had from the government. Um, it's maybe not a surprise, George, because Jeremy Corbyn has been a long-time <laughs> Eurosceptic and campaigned for Remain with very gritted teeth. There's been a lot of people in Labour who are very unhappy, particularly on the, the centre and the soft left of the party, that the leader is going to not be holding the government to account on this question of single market membership or access or well, whatever it is. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, Jeremy Corbyn announcing he's not fully in favour of free trade was one of those stories which passed a lot of people by, to be honest, because among the, the list of many grievances, the centre and centre, the, sort of the centre left of the Labour Party have against Jeremy Corbyn, this is to, to be added to the list. But frankly, the state of affairs in the Labour Party now is so grievously bad that um, it's just another thing to add to the ledger. I think what will be interesting to see will be the extent to which after Jeremy Corbyn's re-election, which many of us expect, although it's obviously not a foregone conclusion, the extent to which some of the people who are his critics inside the party will come back with their tails between their legs and feel they have to do their duty and will return to the front bench jobs they relinquished when they started this coup back in the early summer. Just to divert from Brexit very briefly, um, shadow cabinet elections are back on the agenda as well because Labour used to elect members of the party to serve on the shadow cabinet. The leader had to basically choose from what he was given. Now, they were phased out under Ed Miliband, but Labour MPs have voted this week to reintroduce them at conference. If that happens, how could that change the Labour leadership, do you think? Well, I suppose the idea is that you try to curtail Jeremy Corbyn's room for manoeuvre by electing a load of people who reflect more accurately the view of the parliamentary party. Um, the question is how many of the, the people the parliamentary party might elect will actually want to serve in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet? You know, Will you get people, some of the, I'd hesitate to use the expression big beasts in the context of the Labour Party, but people like, for example, Yvette Cooper or Chukra Muna, will they come back and serve? Uh, and I think that's unclear at this stage. And finally, Chris, the last thing on Brexit was um, Australia and Liam Fox, who's our International Trade Secretary, um, talked up the idea that we're going to have a quick and easy free trade deal with our Anglophone partners. And he was rapidly slapped down by Stephen Chabo, the Australian Trade Secretary, who said, we will make a deal when the time is right and after Brexit has happened. And this really clarified for me the sort of ridiculousness of Dr Fox's position. He's International Trade Secretary, yet he can't do any trade, can't sign any deals until we've left the EU. So what's he going to do for the next few years? He's going to do very little, I think, is the is the truth of the matter. He'll have meetings and, they'll ex- and have lots and lots of expressions of interest in doing a deal that this country and that country wants to do a deal. But trade deals aren't just things you want to do a deal and then you sign them, you want to do a deal, then you get into the nitty-gritty of trade-offs and they're often very, very difficult and as we're seeing with the TTIP between Europe and the US often don't necessarily come to fruition. Yes, and I think actually one of the interesting things about Liam Fox's position is that the government hasn't even decided yet whether it wants to leave the European Union Customs Union. So there may be no job. So if you don't leave the Customs Union, Dr Fox is out of a job. It's a bizarre state of affairs. 
If the government doesn't seem to know what it's doing on Brexit, it doesn't seem to have much idea on education either. Ever since Theresa May entered Downing Street earlier this summer, there's been a lot of talk about the return of grammar schools. It's a topic that pulls at the Conservative heartstrings like no other. David Cameron spent many years in government fighting down the talk of reintroducing selective education, but his success seems to have a very different view, not least because she is herself a grammar school girl and her cabinet is now full of a lot of people who harp back to the days of grammar schools and what they did for them. So Helen Warfax, begin with you. Where's this talks all come from bringing back grammar schools? Why do people want to do this and what would it achieve, if anything? Well, first of all, this is absolutely, as you say, a touchstone for Tories, especially those um, in the south of England where there is an enormous Tory grassroots support for bringing back grammar school education. We know that Nick Timothy, who is Theresa May's chief of staff, is himself a grammar school educated boy and he feels passionately that a return to selective education is a way of broadening this more diverse education market that was started with uh, Michael Gove school reforms and and he thinks that a selection is is an important part of that. Labour's view tends to be they want everything through the comprehensive model and with a lot of local authority control and say on how that's run. What Michael Gove has tried to do is to introduce choice and selection through academies to make schools better and free schools, but crucially, they don't allow for selective entry. Now, there has been talk of that, but that hasn't actually happened, if I'm correct. No, I mean, it's completely inimical to the whole idea of free schools and academies that there would be any selection. And in fact, if you talk to those who supported Gove's reforms and were involved in that agenda, they see this new suggestion that grammar schools could be brought back as a huge threat to what was essentially a progressive agenda in the way that they intended it. Miranda Green, I can see some very vigorous nodding from you across here about grammar schools. I take it that you don't think that this is a good idea. I think it's a terrible distraction. It's a politically understandable one for the reasons you've outlined about why this issue is so important to the Tory grassroots. But also... We have enormous problems with what the school system offers in the UK, um, in England, I should say, specifically on this. And this is a distraction because the academy's programme, the improvements that they've been trying to introduce in things like maths teaching, and even experiments like Kenneth Baker's UTCs, as university technical colleges, which are, offer more vocational training, those are actually trying to address the real problems we have with what the school system delivers. Grammar schools would broaden, potentially, the number of people reaching a kind of educational elite. But we don't actually have problems with our elite education in this country. We have enormous problems with what is offered to the rest. And that's why there's been this quite extraordinary cross-party consensus since the Blair era, actually, on things like academies and those sort of reforms, because they are supposed to cater to the left behind and trying to get the general educational level of the whole population up. Grammar schools would do the opposite. And it's actually, interestingly, there's been a lot of rhetorical divisions between Labour and the Tories on education reform, particularly during the Gove era that you referred to. But that, in my mind, masked a remarkable new degree of consensus on how you tackle social mobility. This is not it, and that's why it would be a major departure. A lot of this is a generational thing. So, for example, my parents both went to grammar schools and a lot of my childhood was, oh, I wish we still had grammar schools and, and that would be the thing because I grew up in an era that was entirely comprehensive education. 
And as I was saying in the introduction, a lot of people in Theresa May's government were educated at grammar school. It's very different from David Cameron's cabinet that was full of privately educated people here. So you can sort of see why they feel they want to give those opportunities to people who have been denied them since the comprehensization of our um, education system. That is a really key point. There's a whole generation that is now the generation that's in charge of the country where grammar school education opened up their entire career. I mean, your parents, my mother was a working class girl whose grammar school education completely changed her life. And probably most of us have an anecdote like that in our family. The problem is the anecdotes aren't backed up by the evidence. I think also those who did go to grammar schools have an incredible nostalgia and this is something that you see bubbling up again and again and again in the Tory backbenches. It's a very, very emotional thing for the party and David Cameron constantly tried to slap it down, sort of suggesting that this was an albatross that was unhelpful, that was not good for his reform agenda. But the problem is it's something which those who benefited from a grammar school education feel passionately, strongly about. Um, the other thing is that analysis of why grammar schools helped that generation, the, the May, Nick Timothy generation, my mother's generation, your parents' generation, is actually to do with a structural change in the economy. A vast amount of new white-collar jobs were created during that particular era, and those opportunities matched up with their grammar school education. I think what we have to ch- challenge in this country now is the fact that If our education system is going to match with our economic needs, we need to concentrate on technical education. We need people with higher technical level skills, not more people with history A-level. And you actually did a very good interview with Kenneth Baker on this topic for the FT, which I'd recommend to our listeners looking up because that certainly outlines this question of technical education because the argument you always hear with grammar schools is for every 20 grammar schools you have x many secondary modern schools and that was always the great criticism of people left behind there and but really this government all previous ones have not focused on that at all and i think the great symbol of that was tony blair's 50 percent to go to university which is often held up as a sort of mistake very interesting point. In fact, during the Blair era, very forward-thinking education secretaries like Charles Clark used to spend a lot of time trying to talk about what they called the other 50% because they knew that this subject of vocational education, technical education was so key to the economy and also to people's life chances. You know, these are very well-paid jobs. Higher technical level qualifications get you into jobs in engineering. That's a great life, you know, and the rest of Europe values engineers, for example, in a way that we don't. The problem has been that every attempt to reform it challenges the supremacy of the model of three A-levels, then university. And so the whole country is sort of obsessed with this academic route, which makes it very difficult to reform the provision of vocational and technical training. The key thing with this, Helen, is that the sense that I'm getting from Downing Street, this is not a huge swathe across the country. They're only talking about, say, 20 or 25 grammar schools plus the expansion, say, of some others. You know, would it really have that much impact on the system? Is this discussion all just symbolic? Increasing the number of grammar schools by, say, 
2020 would only be a sort of 15% increase in the existing number of grammar schools overall. So no, in practice, it wouldn't be that big a deal. But symbolically, I think it would be huge. I mean, this would go down, obviously, extremely well in the Tory heartlands. But the problem is, it would undermine this idea of, of what Michael Gove started of increasing the general level across the whole base, regardless of your background. And The major issue here really is whether or not it's possible to select in a way that doesn't bias those from middle class backgrounds. And Sir Michael Wilshaw has said again and again and again that grammars are essentially stuffed full of middle class kids. What I've seen over the past few days is a suggestion that maybe one route that Downing Street could go down is um, pursuing a sort of tutor proof selection process. This, in practice, is incredibly hard to do. Even IQ tests, simple IQ tests, have been shown to be much better for middle-class children. And there is no very effective test for raw intelligence. And I think when Theresa May sets out her plans, this is going to be one of the biggest issues that she will face. Because the key thing about grammar school was that 11 plus was that cut off point, you know, and you could say either you get into the grammar school and get a fantastic sort of elite education or you don't. And then there was this kind of idea you end up, you know, almost just forgotten, left behind. And the way they're going to try and get around this is not by having that finite cut-off point, so I don't know quite how would that would work there. So it's not exactly grammar schools as the nostalgic rose-tinted view. It's a sort of a different view of them. So is this entirely backward-looking? Well, there is a view quite widely held across a lot of educational reformers and across the political spectrum that we need to look in a much more sort of holistic, to use a terrible word, way at whether some kids should go down the academic route and a lot more should go down the technical vocational route. And there is an argument that you should actually do that at 14, not 11, and that actually the cut-off between primary and secondary is the wrong time to make these big decisions. And that's partly what Ken Baker's been arguing for. There's also this, as Helen's quite rightly said, enormous controversy over the tests which would separate you, that old sheep and goats issue at the age of 11. It's all very well saying we're going to invent a neutral test. You know, I've spoken to head teachers both of grammar schools and selective private schools over the years. They're aware that it's a kind of cat and mouse games. You're always trying to invent tests that can't be tutored to, and it's utterly impossible. And at the moment, grammar schools only have around 7% of kids on free school meals, which is way below the national average, certainly in deprived and urban areas. And finally, last question, Helen, um, what would the education establishment, the teachers, the unions, what do they think about grammar schools? Well, this is obviously something that ignites extremely strong views and the unions are firmly opposed to any form of selection. Um, as I've mentioned, Sir Michael Wilshaw, head of Ofsted, is, has, is on record saying that he thinks this is absolutely not the way that we should go forward. Whatever happens, this is something that the Tories, even among themselves, are not in agreement with. There are prominent people such as David Willits who famously decided against pursuing any more Tory policies in favour of grammar schools. So even within the party, this is not something in which there's any consensus at all. Well, we'll see how that develops. I don't think it's the last time we'll be discussing Brexit or grammar schools. That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all our guests for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, you might also like to try our Alpha Chat podcast presented by me, Cardiff Garcia. 
where each week FT writers, bloggers, and their invited guests will have a wonky, funny, and occasionally even irreverent chat about topics related to the financial markets and economics. Check it out at ft.com forward slash podcast. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com. 